powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hi. Hey, everyone. Thank you. Oh, man. Thank you guys so much. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Sit down, please. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to another fantastic episode of The Derek Duvall Show. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Thank you. I am Derek. This is another fantastic voyage into the lives of extraordinary people. And believe me when I say, today's journey is one of those Mount Rushmore interviews. So, not much really going on with me lately. Uh, We did just get seeing the new Jurassic Park film. So be on the lookout for Derek and Mindy's family movies coming about that in the next few days. Also, we have a fun and huge special announcement coming at the end of this episode. So be sure to hang around to the very, very end. Welcome to episode 60. Yes, 6-0. And boy, do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen of Duval Nation, we are deeply honored to have on the show gay and human rights activist Peter Tatchell is here. We will be talking about his incredible life, his decades of fierce activism, his thoughts on a variety of social issues, and so much more. This is a truly, truly amazing interview. I cannot wait for you to hear it, so let's just get right to it. Duval Nation, rise to your feet and welcome to the show direct from London, England, gay and human rights icon, Peter Tatchell. Peter, welcome to the show. I always like to start at the beginning. What was it like for you growing up in Melbourne, Australia? I was born in 1952. So just seven years after the end of the Second World War. And the war did very much shadow my childhood. Uh, My uncle um, fought in the war. Um, My father was given an exemption because he was a factory worker and regarded as essential uh, work. Um, But growing up, you know, my childhood was all about war books, war comics, um, conversations about the war, memories of the war in newspapers. And I always thought to myself, you know, how come people allowed Hitler to come to power? You know, why didn't people do anything? And I can remember, maybe I was only perhaps 10 or 12, but I thought to myself, if I ever see an injustice, I'm not going to look the other way. I'm not going to walk to the other side of the road. I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to fight it. So that was sort of quite influential in in making me who who I am today. Mm -hmm. So at what age did you decide to take up activism? And do you remember your very first protest? My very first protest was when I was still at high school, age 15. It was against the death penalty in the Australian state of Victoria, of which Melbourne is the capital. A prisoner had allegedly shot dead a warder during an escape. 
but I read the autopsy report and at the age of 15 worked out that from where the escaped prisoner was standing when he fired the fatal shot or allegedly fired the fatal shot and where the prison warder was standing when he was allegedly hit, um, the bullet would have almost had to do a U-turn in midair. So that immediately, to me, cast doubt on the safety of that conviction. So I joined the campaign to oppose that man being hanged. But I'm sad to say our protests were in vain. And he was hung from the gallows until he was dead. Mm. Um, many years later, there was a commission of inquiry which came to the pretty much the same conclusion that I had uh, all those years previously at the age of 15. The trajectory of the bullet through the warder's body did not match the physical scenario of where the two men were standing. Did they ever figure out who actually may have fired the bullet? The conclusion was that it was probably uh, a bullet fired by another warder and the warder who was killed got caught in the crossfire. Mm. But even now, we, we don't know for absolute certain. But all yeah. I'd say is that that particular execution, it, it destroyed my trust and confidence in the government, the police, the judges. I thought to myself, if they could allow a man where there was at least some reasonable doubt about his guilt to be hanged from the neck until he was dead, what else were they doing that was wrong? Mm -hmm. And so that prompted me to look into the history of the uh, oppression and persecution of Australia's black indigenous population, the Aboriginal people who had been dispossessed from their land by English settlers from the late 18th century onwards. It led me to question Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War alongside the United States. And when I was 17, it, and I realized I was gay, it led me to question homophobia and the state-sanctioned persecution of LGBT plus people, which in those days included or could include compulsory enforced psychiatric treatment. So what was the major contributing factor that led you to leave Australia for the United Kingdom in 1971? I'd always wanted to travel. I had a great thirst and yearning to experience and understand different nations and cultures. But the real driving influence was because I refused to register for the draft to fight in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I regarded that war to be unjust and immoral. I wasn't prepared to collaborate in any way with the um, draft system. Uh, if I had stayed in Australia and maintained that position, I would have faced two years imprisonment. So I just started my first ever relationship and I didn't want to be torn apart from the person I loved. Um, so with some degree of moral uncertainty and ambiguity, I decided we'd leave Australia. We'd go to Britain, we'd tour around for maybe two or three years until the war was over, then we would return. Mm -hmm. In the end, um, <laughs> when I arrived in London, the Gay Liberation Front had just been formed. Uh, back in Melbourne, there were no LGBT organizations, no helplines, no switchboards, no counseling services, and certainly no campaign groups. So 
arriving in London at the age of 19 in 1971 and getting involved in the Gay Liberation Front was an incredibly exciting and liberating experience. Now, I did not intend to stay in the UK, mm -hmm. but you know, I got a good job. Just one thing led to another and eventually <laughs> the, the temporary stay became permanent and here I still am. Right. So would you say the Gay Liberation Front, was that the first organized LGBTQ group in the United Kingdom? No, it wasn't. There were earlier groups, the Homosexual Law Reform Society and the Northwest um, Homosexual Law Reform Committee. Uh, they were very much focused on repealing the total ban on mm. male homosexuality. Um, and they secured that in 1967 with a partial limited decriminalization. The maximum penalty of life imprisonment was scrapped and replaced by a maximum penalty of five years in certain circumstances. But the law only applied to England and Wales. It wasn't extended to uh, Scotland until 1980 and not to Northern Ireland until 1981. And on top of that, the armed forces and merchant navy were excluded from the law reform. So uh, it remained a criminal offence for members of the armed forces to have a same-sex relationship right up until 1994. You say that um, I've read history in the past about how homosexuality was outlawed. Uh, people like Alan Turing, who were wrongfully uh, mistreated by the government, stuff like that. I mean, you just hear about it. It just churns your stomach that a government would look at a certain amount of people but even echoes back to the, the Second World War, that they don't look at them as human, that they would do something so horrific to them. Well, you know, the irony was that the Nazis had a program for the eradication of what they called abnormal existence, mm -hmm. i.e. homosexuality. Mm -hmm. But in Britain and the United States and Australia at the same time, many psychiatrists and doctors also regarded homosexuality as an aberration, an illness, an abnormality, mm -hmm. And they practice various treatments to try and eradicate it. Um, so here in Britain, we had publicly funded hospitals doing electric shock aversion therapy. Now, this involved um, a gay person being strapped in a chair, <clears throat> having electrodes applied to parts of their body, and then being shown uh, pictures of um, semi-naked men. And every time one of those images came up, they would be given an electric shock. So this was based on the theories of B.F. Skinner, who argued that behavior could be modified. And in this case, the idea was to associate um, homosexuality with unpleasant, uncomfortable experiences and therefore turn people straight. It did not work at all. In fact, mm -hmm. it, it caused immense emotional psychological and physical ill health so in the early 80s a virus was unleashed upon the world which would go on to be known as aids uh, what are your memories of the early days of that crisis well here in britain we didn't have the first case of hiv until 1982 uh, it was a young gay man called terence higgins but very quickly the virus spread <clears throat> largely because the mode of its spread was not known uh, there was no government education campaign, but eventually the LGBT plus community got together 
and reorganized the campaign to promote the idea of safer sex. Mm -hmm. Now, initially, uh, we didn't actually know in those early days precisely how the virus was transmitted, but we did assume it was probably sexual. And so that led to the invention by LGBT plus communities around the world of safer sex. An incredible invention, a simple invention, but an incredible invention that has over the years saved literally millions of lives. What were the biggest obstacles for gay men and women in the early days of the pandemic? And are you amazed at how far treatments have come since the early 80s? Well, the government of Margaret Thatcher uh, was very hostile to the LGBT plus community. In the early 80s, the Thatcher government launched what they called the Family Values Campaign. And that was followed up a bit later by the Return to Victorian Values Campaign, i.e. to the Victorian era in the 19th century. Now, neither of these campaigns had any place for LGBT plus people. Plus, we had numerous statements by conservative politicians who argued that the response to HIV and AIDS should be to quarantine gay people, to put us in isolation, to separate us from the rest of society. Now, this didn't happen, but it certainly was something that was being called for. And there was a huge, huge increase in public homophobia, whether it be from politicians, the media, the church, and indeed um, from members of the public. The rate of homophobic abuse, threats, and insults rocketed. You know, I had gay friends who were regulars at their local pub. Uh, they went there during the AIDS crisis and were told, go away, bring your own glasses. I had friends who went to dine at restaurants, even restaurants where they'd been regulars, and they were told to go away, bring your own plates and cutlery. You know, there was a famous notorious case where a, a gay man was taken to court dressed head to, forced by the court to dress head to toe in a biohazard suit. And at the end of the trial, the judge ordered that the biohazard suit be taken away and burned at the highest possible temperature. This is all based on the assumption that HIV could be easily casually transmitted, which of course it can't. There's always been strong activism in the gay community, uh, one of which was chronicled in the 2014 film Pride, uh, told the story of the incredibly successful group Gays and Lesbians Support the Minors during the 84 Miners' Strike. Did you ever interact with the group, and did you ever meet Mark Ashton? I did know Mark Ashton very well, and um, I, I worked with Lesbian Gays Support the Minors a little bit, but I also, being a big public figure at that time, did my own work with mining communities, touring around the country, um, speaking at events uh, in support and solidarity, including fundraisers for the mining communities during the great miners' strike of 1984-1985. This strike was in response to the conservative government of Margaret Thatcher planning to mass close um, coal mines across the country, potentially putting tens of thousands of miners out of jobs with no plan for compensate proper plan for compensation or, or retraining. Um, so the strike was called in response to those plans. And 
we saw this very much as an attack by the Conservative government, not just on the mining community, but also on the whole trade union movement. And whatever you think about trade unions, they have been a very important defense of workers' rights. And right. nearly all the improvements in wages and conditions have come about through the activities of unions. So um, as part of our solidarity, um, myself and Lesbian and Gay Support the Miners, we did fundraising to help survive those communities. They, they were being starved in submission by mm-hmm. the government. You know, they were literally, in many instances, on the verge of starvation. All their money was being cut off. They were destitute. So we raised money and the Lesbian and Gay Support the Miners supported a particular village in South Wales and gave them tremendous support, which enabled them to, um, you know, buy food and heat their homes during the strike. Um, It was a great example of solidarity and it was reciprocated. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the following year in 1985, the miners' unions went to the Labour Party conference and pushed forward the comprehensive LGBT rights policy that Labour eventually agreed. So we supported them, they supported us. I originally am from South Wales. I moved to America in 1990, and I used to hear stories of that miners' strike in the in the in the early 80s and the things, the the praise and uh, honest uh, gratitude that the mining community had, I, I don't think they'll ever, I don't think words can really put that into into context of just how appreciative uh, the mining community was. Well, absolutely. And, you know, um, as I say, it was a two-way thing and it just shows mm-hmm. the power of solidarity. How did Outrage come together and how much success did you have starting out? Outrage was formed in 1990. Um, It was in response to two things, really. First, a wave of homophobic attacks and murders. In the period 1986 to 1991, I identified 51 instances of gay men being murdered where the circumstances of the murder pointed to a homophobic motive. Mm-hmm. And these were just the cases that came to my attention. I'm sure the real figure was much higher. The problem was that the police were doing derisory, perfunctory, and quite shoddy investigations, often not appealing for public help and support to find the perpetrators. That was one issue. The second issue was that at the same time, the police were putting huge resources into entrapping and arresting gay men for consenting same-sex behavior. So they would use argent provocateurs. Um, They would choose a young, attractive police officer, dress him up in a gay style, you know, a tight white t-shirt, white trousers, skin tight, black boots, a leather jacket. They'd send him into a public toilet or a park Sometimes those officers would actually play with their genitals and any man who responded would then be swooped upon and be arrested. Um, No members of the public were complaining. This was just a way of the police to boost their arrest and conviction rates. Mm -hmm. It was was a shameful targeting of our community. So that's the reason why outrage came into existence. 
unlike other groups like Stonewall, which is a parliamentary lobbying organization, mm -hmm. Outrage was a direct action group. We followed Mahendras Gandhi, Martin Luther King, um, and others pursuing nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience to challenge homophobic individuals and institutions. So we were very much, you know, the shock troops. Um, we were there creating chaos, challenging people face to face, um, not lying down and taking it, standing up tall and proud and demanding a response. Uh, we're going to be talking about your documentary very shortly, but one part that is covered uh, was the disruption of the Archbishop of Canterbury's Easter sermon. Uh, how much planning and work goes into organizing a successful and media-covered protest? Well, outrage was from 1990 through to the late 1990s, doing some kind of uh, direct action protest every second or third week. Um, and we continued doing that, perhaps at a slightly lesser scale, right until 2011, when after 21 years, the group uh, formally folded. Um, we were a 100% all volunteer group. We had no paid staff, we had no organized funding. We paid for everything out of our own pockets. We always tried to initially uh, do things the right way, to engage in negotiations, you know, meet with people in power who were doing bad things to the LGBT plus community. It was only when that didn't work that we did the direct action. So in the case of the protest against the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1998, we had tried with others in the LGBT plus community to meet with him for eight years. He wouldn't even respond to our letters, let alone meet us. So at the end of the day, we thought, well, We've got a choice. We either give up and walk away or we take a protest to him. And we're better than on Easter Sunday in his cathedral when the whole event is televised to the world. So what we did was we we planned the operation. It was a bit like a, a military operation, really, mm. you know, very detailed planning. We turned up in our Sunday best. <laughs> we sat in uh, the side aisle of the cathedral near the front, but not quite. Some of us had our Bibles to make us look in place. <laughs> um, we didn't interrupt any of these sacred parts of the service. But when the Archbishop began his sermon, then we got about out of our seats and walked towards the pulpit. As we approached, we noticed there were three church wardens guarding it, sort of. Um, we didn't want to have any confrontation with them. Uh, and fortunately, one of our members had the brainwave to feign an asthma attack. So he began gasping and clutching his chest and falling down on the ground. So the church wardens ran over to help him. And while they did that, we calmly walked up into the pulpit and I stood next to the archbishop. <laughs> he was very surprised, <laughs> but he stepped back and gave me the pulpit. And then I began to. Um, you know, preach an alternative sermon on the theme of homophobic discrimination is not a Christian value. It's incompatible with the Christian gospel of love and compassion. I agree. Um, I didn't get very far into my alternative sermon 
because being a very big prestigious civic occasion easter sunday um in the cathedral in the front row together with the local municipal officials and others were the local police chiefs and their deputies <laughs> so they got up, out, up out of their seats and began walking towards the pulpit there were seven of us in the pulpit and the others were holding up placards pointing out that the archbishop was not only saying that homosexuality was sinful and we must repent but even worse in our view he was saying that homosexuals are inferior to heterosexuals and that we do not therefore deserve equal rights so he was supporting discrimination in certain circumstances in, in employment he was saying that same-sex couples should not be allowed to foster or adopt children he was opposing any kind of legal recognition for same-sex relationships uh, both against civil unions and against same-sex marriage so that was the issue that we were we were on about um <clears throat> I sort of just carried on preaching. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the next thing I knew was a big, hefty sort of arms grabbed me around the waist and yanked me backwards. Um, I had been holding on to this beautiful medieval pulpit because I was, I was extremely nervous, I've got to tell you. Uh, and I was holding on for dear life to steady myself and to give me strength. And so when, when I was yanked by the police, part of the pulpit came apart in my hands. The upshot was that I was um, taken to the nearby Canterbury police station uh, where um, the police were you know, furiously debating what could they charge me with. Initially, they were going to charge me with criminal damage to the pulpit. But then I pointed out, well, look, it's all filmed. It's all, all on TV. You will see and the world will see that I didn't break the pulpit. You yanked me from behind. That's what caused the pulpit to come apart. So I was sent away and eventually, some weeks later, I was told that I was going to be charged with, quote, indecent behavior in a church, contrary to the Ecclesiastical Courts Jurisdiction Act of 1860, formerly part of the Brawling Act of 1551. Now, I hasten to add that I did not drop my trousers <laughs> under this law interrupting a minister of religion in a church service is deemed to be indecent so i was eventually taken to court uh, the magistrate accepted that the protest had been peaceful dignified i hadn't insulted the archbishop or the christian religion i just made a number of statements against discrimination but he said you know the law is absolutely watertight there are no exemptions you are guilty now he could have fined me I think five thousand pounds and sent me to prison for six months in the end <laughs> he <laughs> fined me 18 pounds 60. his comical reference to the 1860 act under which i'd been convicted <laughs> and that is to this day the only standing conviction that i have out of over three thousand direct action protests Crazy. i have been arrested more than a hundred times in britain and several other countries but that's the only standing conviction on top of that, because I am very forthright in my challenge to not just to homophobia, but to racism, misogyny, uh, social injustice in general, I am trolled relentlessly by far right extremists and um, actually physically assaulted. I I've been 
physically violently assaulted over 300 times. Mm -hmm. uh, nearly all the teeth in my mouth have been chipped and cracked from various assaults. Um, take it as a backhanded compliment. <laughs> if I wasn't being effective, no one would bother. But the fact that I am making an impact obviously riles a lot of people. And, you know, I do have to look over my shoulder. I have to be careful when I'm out in public because there are people out there to get me. I want to move on to, uh, which is, in my opinion, a real big one for you, documentary of your life and exploits, hating Peter Tatchell. Who came up with the idea to create it? Well, that was the idea of the director, Christopher Amos. He was very surprised that no documentary had been made about what is now my 55 years of human rights activism. Right. So he did some research. And he was astonished at the scale and the level of invective and hate against me. So that's how he came up with the title, Hating Peter Tatchell. Now, it's entirely his film. I was not involved, but I did collaborate in that I allowed him to come with me to Moscow in 2018 uh, to film my protest against uh, the witch hunt and murder of gay people in Russia. Um, just on the opening day of, of the World Cup. That was the only collaboration. And for me, you know, I was very happy that he made this film. And it is a, it's only a snapshot of about 15 campaigns out of thousands I've done. Right. But it does give you a flavor. And on top of that, um, for me, I was pleased that the documentary was made because I think it shows through my work how to make social change. Or at least that's that, that that was my that's that's my intention or that's my hope right. that it shows people how or gives people ideas on how to make social change and I hope it will inspire a new generation of change makers. How did Sir Elton John and David Furnish get involved? Well, the director Christopher Amos um, contacted them, uh, told them about the project, and they were very enthusiastic. They 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 thought yes, it is about time that you know a documentary was made uh, and it's great that it's going to be on netflix we want to be part of it and indeed they did help make sure that netflix um you know took it up and promoted it from the time that uh, christopher amos came to you until the time of the release how long did it take to uh, put the film together christopher began filming in 2015 and began research about the same time and of course the film came out last year uh may 2021 so there you work it out. It's, it's a good six years. <laughs> so how important was it to secure um, Stephen Fry and Sir Ian McKellen? Well, it's great to have them on board because they're big public figures. It's great to have their input and perspectives. You know, uh, they give a take about what I do and what I've helped achieve. Um, but certainly they've given it the film a boost. I mean, if, if they hadn't been present, you know, it still would have been great, but having big right. names like Elton John, David Furnish, Stephen Fry, Sriya McCallan, that all makes the film, you know, stronger. But I've got to say, I'm really surprised in the United States, there has been virtually no coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, you know, the main LGBT plus um, publication, The Advocate, has not covered it. Neither has Out Magazine, uh, nor many others. And I just don't quite understand why, because um, it, it's 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 a great story and you know it's a, it's a great example of how lgbt plus people can make change 
it is rated a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Do you remember the premiere and what sort of feedback have you gotten about the film? Well, the premiere was a very <laughs> disappointing <laughs> series of cancellations. It was due to premiere at the Melbourne International Film Festival in August 2020, because you know the main funders were Australian. Mm -hmm. um, but because of COVID, that was cancelled. Then it was rescheduled for uh, a premiere at the same festival in August 2021. And that was also cancelled because of COVID and lockdown. So it's never really had a proper premiere as such. Um, it has had showings like here in London. Um, it, it, it did have a big showing at the Raindance Film Festival. Um, uh, was it late last year, early this year? Um, but it hasn't, hasn't didn't, didn't have the grand premiere that we'd hoped. And that's all down to COVID, I'm afraid. Yeah, bad luck. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a brief break. This gives you a chance to refresh the drink, do some nice deep stretches, listen to a few promos for friends of the show, and then we will be right back. This is Country Boy for One My Black History. And if you listen to my podcast, this is some of the things that you will enjoy. The term Jim Crow derives from early 19th century minstrel shows. It was a popular form of entertainment, which is the predecessor to vaudeville. The shows consisted of a primarily white song and dance performer crudely mimicking African-Americans for the enjoyment of white audiences. One of the earliest and most famous was Thomas Daddy Rice, who devised a strutting, dancing character supposedly mimicking a prancing crow, and the character became known as Jim Crow. And if this is the type of content that you enjoy, you can find more content like this at OneMikeHistory.com. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own, with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Welcome to Wine Chats with Bildo and Lindalyn. My name is Billy Milovanovich, aka Bildo. My name is Lindsay Kirkwood, also known as Lindalyn. And this is our offensively funny podcast about drinking wine and chatting life. Some of our previous topics include conspiracy theories. I know somebody that thinks the world's flat. What? Like a real person? Yes. Body ailments. I'm going to go from toes up because I have a lot. <laughs> no, seriously, you laugh, but I have so many this body ailments. This is what ailments. happens with age, guys. And I know. And orgasms. I'm a little bit frustrated and it just hasn't been happening. I, I'm trying, Henry's trying, we're all trying, but when orgasming is good, it's good. Basically, we talk about all the things that you would generally talk about over wine with your girlfriends. New episodes out each Monday. Chat, Chat soon. soon! 
Welcome back to the Derek Duvall Show. We have so much more to cover, so let's not waste any more time. Duval Nation, here is the conclusion of our interview with gay and human rights icon, Peter Tatchell. So you wrote an article, uh, and I read it uh, a little earlier, about the Nazi doctor, Karl Varney, about his brutal experiments on homosexuals imprisoned at uh, Buchenwald uh, concentration camp. What led you to write it, and how successful were you in taking Denmark to task for failing to prosecute him? Well, what happened is I read in a rather obscure book, a little footnote, that this Danish doctor, Karl Vernet, had been invited by Heinrich Himmler, the head of the Gestapo, to do a program for the extermination of homosexuality. And Vernet convinced Himmler that he had medical theories and ideas that could achieve that goal. So he was given a, a funding and remit by the Nazis to experiment on gay prisoners in both Buchen Buchenwald and Neuengamme concentration camps. His experiments were a failure. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he thought testosterone injections or implants would cure homosexuality. Quite clearly it didn't and doesn't and won't. Um, but what astonished me was that um, you know, none of this was really had been investigated. He'd never been put on trial for war crimes like the other Nazi doctors. So all I had was this very, very basic rudimentary information. So I began by writing to the German government to request all the files on Varnet from the um, you know, wartime period. Um, I got no cooperation from the German government at all. Mm -hmm. Because he was a Danish citizen, I then wrote to the Danish government. Um, again, well, the Germans just, just ignored my letters, wouldn't even respond. Um, the Danes did respond. They said that if I felt strongly about this, I should bring a private prosecution. Well, you know, <laughs> no one was going to suggest that the Nazi leaders um, be prosecuted at Nuremberg by private individuals. Um, they and the Nazi doctors were put on trial on, in, in state trials to bring them to justice. Um, so when I responded on, on these lines, they said, well, you can go to the Danish archive and, and get the information you need there. When I approached the Danish archive, I was told that the files were closed for decades to come. And that roused my suspicion. You know, I, I thought, well, you know, why are they closing these files? Why are they keeping them top secret all these years? And then I discovered that Werner had actually escaped to Argentina just after the war. He'd actually been in British military detention and due to face a war crimes trial, but he faked a heart condition and boasted to the British that he had a cure for homosexuality, which the British thought was great. Mm -hmm. So they allowed him to go to Stockholm to have treatment. This was all complete fake. There was no heart condition. There were no doctors treating him in Stockholm. This was just a fake uh, story to get him to Stockholm so he could join the Nazi rat run of escaped Nazis to South America. 
So I discovered that he got to South America and had, um, in fact, lived openly in Buenos Aires in Argentina after the war. So I wrote to the then Argentine president, Carlos Menon, to ask for the files. Again, complete blank, no cooperation whatsoever. So then I went back to Denmark because that seemed the most hopeful sign. And I managed to um, alert a group of left-wing politicians and journalists in Denmark about the story as I knew it. So they began to, the, the, the members of parliament began to ask questions in parliament and the journalists began to print stories. And that was really what burst open the doors to reveal everything. Um, it transpired that Werner had died in 1965 in Buenos Aires. So he was no longer, uh, no longer possible to prosecute him. Right. Um, but the big shock was that Vernet was one of about 30 leading Danes who were implicated as war criminals or Nazi collaborators whose files had been buried by the police chief in Copenhagen to prevent them being prosecuted. And one of them was the father of the then Danish prime minister. This completely rocked the Danish establishment and nearly led to the resignation of the prime minister. But Danish people were, were so, so shocked to hear about this high level cover-up to protect pro-Nazi Danish citizens. And a book has been written by four Danish journalists. Unfortunately, it's only in Danish, um, right. which reveals the whole story. But the upshot is, you know, I am so shocked that the British allowed Vernet to escape. And we subsequently discovered that the Allies, the American government, the British government, the Danish government, all knew that Vernet was living openly in Buenos Aires, but made no attempt to extradite him back to Denmark. Mm. So he was a war criminal who got away with it. And he only got away with it because he was seeking to eradicate homosexuality, which they thought was a damn good thing. Uh, one of the key topics in your documentary has been your health of late. Um, the film shows in other, and in other parts mentions brutal assaults even during, and you mentioned earlier, teeth have been chipped and such. Um, as of today, uh, how are you feeling right now? Well, as I mentioned, I've had over 300 bars assaults, you know, including you know, being punched, kicked, spat at, hit with baseball bats, bats rocks, uh, bottles. I've had you know, things thrown through my flat windows. I've had three arson attempts on my flat, a bullet through my front door. It had a time that's been like living through a low level civil war. It's been very, very scary. But, you know, I have my principles, I have my passion, I have my goals. And so I, I carry on. But I have suffered for many years from quite severe post traumatic stress disorder. Or as my doctor says, actually, <laughs> you have post traumatic stress disorder when you've got over the attack. The attack has happened in the past. But in my case, it's ongoing. Right. Traumatic stress disorder. So I've had very bad sleep. Um, I've had, you know, a lot of night terrors, 
where I, you know, relive attacks and literally jump six inches off the bed and sit bolt upright in the, in, in the bed with my heart pounding so hard, it feels like it's going to burst out of my chest. So it, it has been tough, but Hey, you know, I, I'm still here. Right. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to be browbeaten by these various, uh, you know, far right extremists, Islamists, homophobes, and others who, who target me. How do you, that being said, how do you mentally prepare for a protest that you might in some way knowingly, you might know in advance, you might be assaulted or it might lead to an arrest. How do you mentally prepare for that? It is quite, it's, 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 it's quite a challenge. And even though I've done so many of these protests over the year, years, every new time I have the same tension and nervous anxiety. You know, I tend to have a, a splitting headache from the nervous tension. Um, my body temperature will plummet. I'll get goose pimples even if I'm wearing lots of clothes. Uh, my stomach will churn over. Uh, I'll feel like urinating and defecating. Um, it is incredibly stressful. And that's for two reasons. First of all, the fear of being caught and the protest not working and ultimately being, being arrested and charged and convicted of an offence, but also the violence of people around so when i've taken on islamist extremists you know protested outside mass rallies of islamist extremists who said that women who have sex outside of marriage should be killed who said that jews should be killed who said that lgbt plus people should be killed when i've protested outside those rallies you know i have been threatened you know i've been told that they will track me down and find me and kill me and in many instances they've they've tried or have actually assaulted me so of course i'm nervous of course i'm i'm fearful but my belief in the cause overrides the fear so you know i had the passionate commitment to justice um and that overrides the fear um how did the formation of the peter tatchell foundation come about and what successes have you had with it so far well the foundation was actually set up not by me but by a group of my friends and supporters. Mm -hmm. They were astonished that for 45 years, I've been doing all this human rights campaigning without having any income, without having an office, and without having any staff support. They thought, I need an organizational structure to make me more effective. So that's how they came up with the idea of the Peter Tatchell Foundation. I've got to tell you, I was not actually very happy with it being named after me. I thought that was a oh, bit wow. ego egocentric. Mm -hmm. But they said, look, if we call it the Human Rights Foundation, no one will know who's behind or what it's about. You know, we need, need to have some name recognition. That's why we need to use your name. So on that basis, I, I, I agreed. So we are a very tiny organization. I have one assistant and a part-time person as well. So there's two and a half of us. <laughs> We do a mixture of LGBT plus and other human rights work. Uh, some of it UK based and some of it supporting movements and campaigns in other countries as well. So we do a lot of work giving advice and support to often small underfunded um, human rights you know, campaigners in other countries. Uh, just recently, for example, we've been doing a lot of work helping LGBT plus people escape from the Taliban in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and we've provided funding to a gay Afghani 
uh, Nimat Sedak, who's escaped and now lives in the United States. But from the US, he coordinates uh, escape routes for LGBT people to get out of Afghanistan. So we've provided him with some funding to enable him to do that. And that's just one fragment of what I call our, our, our individual casework, helping people who've been victims of uh, police brutality or malpractice, miscarriages of justice, discrimination, hate crime, and a lot of refugees, um, not just Afghanistan, but now from Ukraine, but also um, Russia, Uganda, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia. Uh, we help hundreds every year. And on top of that, then we do all the campaigns and we do a lot of education work. You know, I go and talk in schools and universities. So we do a wide range of stuff. Um, and, you know, we're just one of many organizations. And I want to pay tribute to all the other organizations and all the other people who are doing great things as well. You just mentioned Russia. How many times have you had run-ins with them? And how hard has it been for you to keep getting into the country? Well, I've been to Russia six times to support the very brave, heroic LGBT plus campaigners there. I've been arrested four times, mm -hmm. once for simply holding, waving a rainbow flag in Red Square. That's all I did. But, you know, I have the protection of a British passport. You know, I have the protection of the British embassy. <laughs> the Russian activists don't have that. Mm -hmm. You know, they are at much, much greater risk. And that's why I went there to support them and bought journalists from Britain and other countries to document their struggle and, and, and what they're going through. So I think that that kind of support work is is really important. On the occasions that I have been arrested, the police have been rough and rude, but I wouldn't say brutal. You know, they twist your arms up your back, they squeeze your throat, they twist your fingers. It's pretty painful, but it's not. I suppose it is a form of torture, but you know, it's it's not really really extreme. What they do do in Russia is that um, the police work in cahoots with neo-Nazis, ultra-nationalists and the Russian Orthodox Church. So what they will do is tip them off about LGBT plus events or LGBT plus protests. So they will come there and the police openly allow them to attack us. So the police have clean hands. They haven't attacked us. And I remember in 2007, when I was set upon by neo-Nazis, it was only when I was on the ground and losing consciousness that the police stepped in. They just, they'd just been standing there with their arms folded watching while I was being battered black and blue. It was only when I was beginning to lose consciousness that they stepped in and arrested me mm. while allowing my attackers to go free. And I can remember in the police van when I was waiting to be taken to the police station, I saw some of the attackers walk up to police lines, these are neo-Nazis, walk up to police lines and show some form of ID and will wave through the police lines. That's pretty clear evidence of collusion between the police and far-right extremists. That's insane that you say that because, you know, knowing what I know about the Second World War, you would think that neo-Nazis would have absolutely no home or, or any kind of support in Russia but that, yeah, that's insane. Well, they are a particular homegrown form of neo-Nazi, which is very Russian chauvinistic. They're, they're not like, you know, Nazi-style Nazis, like as in German. Right. They're, they're very much, you know, homegrown, and they play on 
Russian traditions and uh, Russian culture and uh, Russian nationalism. Hmm. And that, that, I think, is the reason why they are <clears throat> tolerated and in some cases, apparently, uh, even colluded with by the state authorities. Uh, that being said, the world currently has its eyes on the legal invasion of the country Ukraine. Uh, what led you to support the Ukraines in their fight? And can you tell us your strategy for fighting back? Well, by instinct, I'm a pacifist. I loathe war. I love peace. You know, to me, war has to be an absolute last resort. And in the case of Ukraine, um, it is a last resort. You know, they don't have any other option. There is no peaceful way they can protect themselves against the Russian onslaught. So when we hear about the unspeakable war crimes that Russia has committed, you know, the mass killing of civilians, the rape of both women and men in Ukraine by Russian soldiers, you know, we can't just leave the Ukrainians defenseless. We have to stand with them. And so reluctantly, I support Ukraine being armed. You know, they need all the weapons they need to defend themselves against Russian aggression. And for me, this has echoes of the Second World War. You know, Russia is, in essence, a fascist state. You know, there is no free press, no right to protest, no free trade unions, no freedom of expression. Um, it is a state-controlled police state. Um, and on top of that, uh, Russia is now an imperialist state. You know, it is interfering in the internal affairs of other countries, not just Ukraine. It did it previously in Moldova, previously in Georgia. Uh, it's doing it right now in Mali, in Africa, in West Africa. The Russian state is an imperial state. And, and you can see this in its armed forces. Um, for the last 20 years, the Russian state has been shifting its weapons procurement policy from defensive weapons to long range offensive weapons. You know, classic imperialism, you know, aircraft carriers, long range bombers, intercontinental ballistic missiles, all that kind of stuff. This is classic imperialism. And what the Russians are doing in Ukraine echoes what the United States did in Vietnam and Iraq. It right. echoes what the British did in Malaya, Kenya, Aden and many other countries during the, during the colonial era. So for me, Ukraine is fighting against fascism. And it is, it, is, it is a fight that Ukrainians must win, not just for their sake, but for the sake of all the people of Europe. You know, it's almost hard to believe that this war is taking place in Europe right now. Mm -hmm. This monstrous war is taking place in Europe right now all these years after the end of the Second World War. And you know, I just heard a report, not only um, the Russians using Nazi-style tactics of roundups and massacres, but in the case of the city of Mariupol, the Russians have murdered more civilians in Mariupol than the Nazis did when they occupied it in the Second World War. I mean, this is just absolutely unconscionable. And we have to do everything in our power to help the Ukrainians win. And of course, as well as arms to protect themselves, the whole international community needs to wage a nonviolent alternative, i.e. total economic war on Russia. 
to bring the country to its knees to end the Putin regime. So long as he and his acolytes are in power, Russia will be a threat to all the neighboring countries. And we must not allow that to happen. You know, I hate to say that, but you know, Russia has to be completely cut off from the global economic community. Mm -hmm. We'll stop buying Russian oil and gas, cut all links with Russian financial businesses and institutions. There has to be a total, total break. Now, of course, individual Russians, our war is not against individual Russians, not against the Russian people per se, it is against the Russian state. But the only way the state will change is if it is brought to its knees. And that's what we must do. And that is a non-violent way, a preferable way to help end the war in Ukraine and to stop Putin from any further adventures in Moldova, Georgia and elsewhere. Uh, for the most part, gay rights has come a long way over the last 40 years, but there is still much work to do. Uh, what advice would you say or give to those living in fear or shame to come out? Coming out is a personal decision. You know, it depends on your own particular circumstances. If you're living at home with mum and dad and they're homophobic, then coming out is probably not a good idea. If you live in a deeply religious community, maybe evangelical Christian or um, conservative Muslim or Jewish family, it's probably not a good idea while you're still at home and dependent on your family and neighbors. But at the end of the day, coming out is the single most important thing you can do. First of all, it lifts the burden of hiding from your shoulders. Second, we know from the research that a straight person who knows a gay person is much more likely to support LGBT plus rights. So coming out is a way in which you break down prejudice, misunderstanding, ignorance. Um, so in every possible dimension, coming out is the right thing to do but each person must decide when it is best and safe for them to do so. I read an article that said you've gone from one of the most hated men in the United Kingdom to one of the most important organizers of the last half century, and many consider you now to be a national treasure. When I say that, how does that make you feel? Well, um, that is a great honor. Um, <laughs> I'm not too sure I wanna be a national treasure. <laughs> National treasures tend to be put in glass boxes in museums. Um, mm. I'm not ready for that. You know, I'm <laughs> 70 now. I've been campaigning for 55 years already. I plan to carry on for another 25 years. So the fire is still in my belly. You know, I want to see a just, better world for everyone. And there are so many issues which we still have to fight. You know, here in Britain, we are facing an incredible cost of living crisis that's putting millions of people into poverty. You know, people in this country are now having to choose between eating and heating because the cost of heating homes, gas bills have gone up so much uh, in the last uh, year. Um, for me, it's, it's, it's really important to keep fighting, you know, to not, you know, give up, you know, we need to keep those battle flags flying uh, and, until we win a fairer more equal society for everyone and i just want to say that you know i do my bit uh, millions of people do their bit and cumulative and collectively that's what makes the change we together make the change and i want to be part of it as i have for the last five decades
which leads us to the next question is what's next for Peter Tatchell? You got anything lined up? I've always got things lined up, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but some of them are probably not ones I can talk to you about. No, fair enough. Um, certainly with the Football World Cup coming up in Qatar in November, I'm definitely you know planning to campaign um, and already I'm campaigning um, to expose the incredible homophobia of Qatar. You know, the fact that homosexuality is illegal. Under the law, you can be jailed for up to three years. If you're a Muslim, you can be put to death under Sharia law. Um, there's widespread discrimination and police harassment and LGBT plus people are being forced into secret gay conversion centers where they basically hold people hostage in a bid to turn them straight. Then on top of that, there's incredible discrimination against women. You know, a Qatari woman requires permission from a male guardian to study, to marry, or to travel. And then there is the plight of migrant workers, mostly from South Asia, places like Bangladesh and Pakistan. You know, they are living under appalling conditions, sometimes five or six people in a room, maybe eight by 10 feet. Um, already, over six and a half thousand migrant workers have died on construction sites since Qatar was granted permission to hold the World Cup. Um, we've recently had all kinds of reneging by Qatar. When it was granted the World Cup, it promised that LGBT fans would be welcome and that um, rainbow flags could be waved in the stadium. Just recently, they've said, we take that back. No. Rainbow flags are not permitted. You're not allowed. You'll get arrested. They've also apparently pursued a policy whereby a lot of the hotels in Qatar are saying they won't accept LGBT plus guests. When I say a lot, I mean, perhaps I should say qualified some. There hasn't been a comprehensive survey, but we've had anecdotal evidence that there are hotels in Qatar which are being touted by FIFA as places to stay during the World Cup, which have an explicit policy that they will not accept LGBT plus, LGBT plus guests. And at least one hotel has admitted that uh, gay guests staying in the hotel have been raided by the police, arrested and taken to court. Um, not long ago, the Qatari vice and moral police, or the, you know, the, the police against immorality and vice, went on a splurge, seizing all rainbow colored merchandise including kids toys claiming it was lgbt plus propaganda <laughs> i mean these people are just bonkers um but you know it shows that there was a fight to a, a fight to still pursue so before we wind down this interview i do have one question i like to throw a fun one in there uh when you're not saving the world uh what do you do for fun do you are you do you watch any shows are you into any particular music um I do watch, you know, occasional TV and Netflix and what have you. Um, I've just finished watching a couple of Netflix series. Have you heard of Sex Education? I have. It's a great British uh, Netflix drama. Just finished watching that. And then I watched, um, was it We Crossed? Um, the drama about the whole shenanigans about We Work, um, the mm -hmm. whole that whole big financial scam. So yeah, but um, my favorite relaxation is to um, 
listen to electronic dance music. Oh, I don't know what it is about it, but you know, <laughs> um, it, it really triggers the, the right senses in my brain. And I, I, an hour of that completely de-stresses me and um, I'm in a world of my own. Yeah, I love it. Fair enough. So as we begin to wind down this interview, uh, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Well, please go to my foundation's website. It's petertatchellfoundation.org. If you go on the home page, in the top right-hand corner, there's a little button which says, join us. If you give us your email address, we will send you a weekly um, email bulletin on a range of LGBT plus and other human rights stories. Um, most of them very serious, but we always put a quirky, funny one in as well. So you have, <laughs> have a laugh. Um, it's totally free. There's no charge. And then next to the join us button is the donate button. Um, we don't get any organized funding. We depend entirely on well wishes to carry on the work we do. So if you can afford to make a donation, um, go there to the donate button, and that would be very gratefully received. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm just at Peter Tatchell. So I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet is listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? Wake up and act. The climate crisis is real. If we don't act soon, we'll reach a tipping point when climate destruction will become irreversible. That would mean hundreds of millions of people finding that the places they live in will be swamped by rising sea levels. It's going to mean hundreds of millions of people losing their homes and jobs. In particular, the world's richest delta regions, the biggest, most productive food producing regions will disappear under the waves. Not only will hundreds of millions of people have to move from those areas, but that food production will be lost and that will precipitate a crisis in food management across the world with the prospect of starvation on a gigantic scale. So we have to do something and do something now. Do something as individuals, I think you all know how to live a, a greener, more sustainable life, right. but pressure your elected representatives to act because, you know, the future sustainability of human life on this planet is at stake. You know, there's no point in fighting for human rights or social justice. There's no point for, you know, enjoying fashion or music or films or whatever, you, whatever turns you on. There's no point of any of that unless we have a planet on which to practice it. So for me, the climate crisis is the number one priority. That's the thing we all must be focused on. We can do other things as well. Other things are important. It's not just a mono one focus thing but that is the one that we really have to address in priority fair enough peter sir thank you ever so much for doing this in my opinion this is hands down probably one of the most important interviews i've ever done for the show and i'm always going to be in debt for you for willing to come on and talk to me so um thank you thank you thank you well thanks to you and to your listeners i'll just finish with my motto which is very simple don't accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. Love it. Sir, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 60. I want to thank once again the incredible Peter Tatchell for being so gracious with his time. I hope all of you are inspired to take up the call for human rights as much as I was. At the conclusion of the recording for this episode, I just got word that Wales Rugby and the Nethley RFC legend Phil Bennett has sadly died. I grew up hearing tales of his heroics on the rugby pitch, including the legendary 9-3 defeat of New Zealand in 1972 at down at Stratty Park. What a loss to the community and to the sport. I mean, what an icon. All right, before we close out this episode, I want to welcome to the show a very special guest, the co-host of Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies, my co-pilot in life, Mrs. Duval herself, Mindy. Hi, Mindy. Hi, Derek. How are you? I'm good. Are you excited to talk about the awesome announcement we have for Duval Nation? I am. The Derek Duval Show has teamed up with the amazing folks at Tee Public to bring you amazing Derek Duval themed merchandise. That's right. We will have mugs, stickers, and magnets that all bear the logo of either the Derek Duval Show or Derek and Mindy's Fun with Movies. And the best part about this adventure, it is totally affordable and it looks professional in every way. Plus, we have also put together a personally curated collection of t-shirts that Derek and I love on Tee Public. We have t-shirts from some of our favorite films and TV shows. That's right, folks. We have everything from Norm MacDonald, George Carlin. To Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Pride t-shirts. We'll have the link on DerekDuvallShow.com to purchase from our store. And if you act now, you will get an additional discount at checkout. So we want to thank our partners over at Tee Public for being so awesome and partnering up with us. And happy shopping. All right. Thanks, Mim. On behalf of the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you, be safe, be well. And in this Pride Month, reach out to our gay family, friends, and neighbors and let them know that you will have their back through thick and thin. Nostar, God bless, and see you very soon, planet Earth. This has been a recording of the Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duvall Show.